1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. And on this show...
2: Obviously,
3: my assets were uh, significantly smaller than some other
1: presidents uh, or president-elects. What will happen to Donald Trump's businesses once he's president?
3: Governments and regulators might treat his business favorably in order to try and curry uh, favor with the president.
1: There's a new set of reforms in Europe's beleaguered banks. They don't really want to be asked to put aside any more cattle because they can't afford it yet. And finally, why economists are not immune to fads.
2: The danger with these new methods is that economists start to be driven by the methods and not the questions.
1: But first, Donald Trump's various businesses were his claim to fame. That raises obvious questions about potential conflicts of interest when he moves into the White House. About eight years ago, I began this voyage, and it turned out to be a beautiful voyage because the end result is something the likes of which, not only throughout Canada, but I think almost you could say anywhere. That's an advert for Trump Towers in Toronto. But hotels are just one facet of the Trump empire, all of which makes big use of the president-elect's name. Concerns have already been raised about how blurred the lines are between Mr Trump's political and business roles. Joining us on the line from New York is Patrick Fowles, our bureau chief there. Patrick, one would have thought that in America there will be fairly clear guidelines over how to handle these sorts of conflicts. Is, is that the case?
3: Quite the opposite, in fact, and it's, it's one of those frustrating quirks in the way America's political system works. The president, vice president and members of Congress are exempt from the normal rules about how people in government handle conflicts of interest. So as a result, it's, it's to some extent uh, up to the president to write his own rules, although there are precedents about what presidents have done before.
1: Indeed, how have previous presidents handled it?
3: Well, you can go right back through American history, but the first example was set by Lyndon Johnston, and most people have followed something fairly similar where you put your assets and business into a blind trust and it's, it's managed independently and you don't really have much visibility about what's going on. Michael Bloomberg, who owns a very, very large company and his experience when he was the mayor of New York, and he put it at arm's length and really wasn't involved in the day-to-day management, although he did have some say over key decisions.
1: Now, Mr. Trump's proposed solution, as I understand it, is to hand the business over to his children. Is, is that going to be acceptable?
3: Well, it's not as clear-cut as you might think. There are circumstances where it's perfectly okay for people and families to be involved in both politics and business. So, for example, imagine if a politician married a business person. Uh, Would they both or one of them have to quit their careers? Uh, I don't think so. Or uh, imagine, similarly, if the child of a politician started a company. Would that be okay? Probably. The difference in the Trump case is that the kids don't really have a a separate business identity from their father and have also been intimately involved in his political campaign and so far his preparations for office. And as a result, I think it's not very plausible to suggest that by passing the keys to them, the conflicts of interest would be resolved.
1: Indeed, I've seen some calls for Mr Trump to to liquidate his businesses, just get rid of them all. Is that even feasible?
3: Well, I think that has two shortcomings, too. One is practicality. I mean, for example, if an initial public offering of a business normally takes a year to prepare, Donald Trump will be inaugurated in about 60 days' time. And similarly, um, selling a company or or trying to find a sort of reputable buyer for the entire thing, I think, will be impossible, given it's a pretty opaque and sort of patchy portfolio. And you could try and sell bits and bobs, but I think that would take a long time. It could take years to wind the whole thing down. Um, The other thing is, you know, setting a precedent that anyone who's built a company has to liquidate their firm if they want to go into high politics, I think, is a very unhappy one. So as a result, I think an alternative between giving it to the kids and liquidating it needs to be found.
1: And um, what sort of alternative might that be?
3: Well, our proposal is is to consolidate all of the bits of his business into one holding company to get an independent board to run that company. It needs to appoint an external chief executive, and it needs to have a mandate really to run the portfolio as a cash cow of businesses distribute all of its profits. And the result would be a sort of mature portfolio of property assets that, that um, paid off rent to the Trumps, but which they didn't really have any control over
1: perhaps you should row back a bit and look at what, what sorts of conflict specifically might we be looking at?
3: Well, I think there's a there's a curious thing going on where both Donald Trump and now his political critics completely exaggerate the scale of his importance as a businessman, um, although for different purposes. So Trump uh, Inc. is essentially minuscule um, by the standards of modern business. It would rank about 980th uh, on the league table of, of American companies if it was listed. And really, it principally, comprises of property assets, both residential assets and golf courses and and commercial real estate. And almost all of it is in the US. So the idea of a global empire is complete nonsense, really. Having said that, what Trump has done is is struck various branding deals for really fairly small amounts of money by the standards of of, um, business for hotel deals, uh, people are allowed to use his name and so on. So really, I think that the conflicts uh, for Trump could come from two places. One is that uh, he gives special favours to people he wants to do business from. And the other side of the coin is that uh, governments and regulators might treat his business favourably in order to try and curry uh, favour with the president.
1: And there's not much that could be done about that, really, is there? I mean, if foreign officials and politicians want to stay in Trump hotels, even if they're run by a blind trust, they they could do so?
3: Well, I think, you know, fundamentally, the problem here, to some degree, is Americans have chosen to elect a businessman as as their leader. That comes with inherent conflicts, which I don't think any amount of legal manoeuvres can really resolve. They've also chose to elect someone who has a, a character that seems flawed and, and slippery sometimes. Um, and again, there's nothing really any amount of rulemaking can do to resolve that. And I should add that, you know, president, if you imagine, who began with no business assets at all, but who was intent in making money from the White House would still be able to do so. So to some extent, the, the problem here is, is less to do with Trump's existing business and more to do with his his character and intent.
1: Patrick Fowles, thank you very much. Thank you. Donald Trump has taken to Twitter to rail against those who question his business interests.
3: Prior to the election, it was well known that I have interests and properties all over the world. Only the crooked media makes this a big deal.
1: But what do you think? Should he remain at the helm of his business empire while president? Or are we crooked for even raising the issue? You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or you can always send an email to radio at Next on the show. For banks, Donald Trump isn't the only uncertainty clouding the future. Next week, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision meets to decide on a set of reforms known collectively as Basel IV. These reforms aim to standardise the model for gauging credit risks. It all sounds fairly routine, but after a very bad year, some Europeans are worried it will deliver a knockout blow to the more fragile banks. Patrick Lane, our banking editor, joins me now. Patrick, it seems not that long ago we had Basel III, and as I understand it, it's not even been fully implemented yet. Why Basel IV? Why now? Well, Simon, if you talk to the bank
0: supervisors and the Basel Committee, they balk at the term Basel IV, because they say this is actually just a necessary revision of the Basel III framework, which, as you say, hasn't yet been fully implemented. And what's happened is this. As they've looked at the way Basel III has been implemented they have said that the way banks calculate what's called risk-weighted assets varies too much and that banks have been a little bit lenient on themselves. Now, what's going on here is that under the Basel rules, a key measure of a bank's strength is the ratio of its capital, basically its equity, to the risk-weighted sum of its assets. Now, the first stage of Basel III was really focusing on the numerator of that ratio, uh, how you calculate banks' capital. The Revisions, which some people are calling Basel IV, really focuses on the denominator: how you calculate those risk-weighted
1: assets. And, And why are the banks so worried that they've been underweighting the risk?
0: Well, they're worried. I think about two things in the in the proposals that the committee have come up with so far. One is that the committee's proposals are insufficiently sensitive to risk. And the second is that they will raise their capital requirements too much by, if you like, adding to their risk-weighted assets by applying higher risk weights. Now, the concerns are principally in Europe, not in the United States, and to a lesser extent in Japan. Here are the sorts of things the banks are worried about. One is that the committee is proposing that minimum values be applied to certain parameters, for example, the probability that a loan goes bad. Another is that the committee is proposing that if you calculate your risk-weighted assets using your internal models, but the answer must be at least a minimum proportion of what you would arrive at using the standardised approach.
1: So this implies that the committee doesn't really trust the bank's internal modelling. Exactly. And is this it? I mean, once they the committee makes its announcement next week, is, is that it? Do the banks have to go ahead and implement it? Uh,
0: no, it doesn't quite work like that. I mean, the, the committee consists of representatives of central banks and supervisory authorities, which aren't always the same thing, in getting on for 30 different countries. Now, above them, the next stage is what's called the governors and heads of supervision, i.e. the heads of those institutions. So they have to agree on it and rubber stamp it. But after that, it has to be put into law in different countries. Now, In the United States, in one sense it's not a problem because uh, American banks aren't too concerned because uh, anything that might come out of this is unlikely to add anything to their burden. Also, we don't really know what's going to happen in the United States anyway for quite different reasons. In the European Union, it really is a little bit stickier because the EU historically has applied Basel rules to all its banks. The European Commission recently has has said that uh, it's certainly not happy with things as they stand if you go down to the committee level a bundesbank official uh, said last week that you know the bundesbank would not reach an agreement at any price there's an awful lot still to be sorted out And how worried should we be if it's not sorted out? I think you've got to be worried for two reasons. One is just after the crisis, there was a concerted effort to get widely agreed upon improvements and strengthening of capital regulation worldwide. So any crack in that is something to worry about. The other is European banks aren't yet... Sufficiently well capitalized. They know that, their supervisors know that. And although they are quite rightly, possibly, saying that these proposals are insufficiently sensitive to risk, there's also a niggling doubt that the reason they're resisting this is that they don't really want to be asked to put aside any more capital because they can't afford it yet, because they haven't yet earned enough profits to create the reserves to put aside as capital. And so maybe it's also a symbol that European
1: banks just aren't as strong as they ought to be. Patrick Lane, thank you very much. And finally, the economics profession. It's the time of year when economists, hoping to get a good job, are busy preparing papers ahead of the meeting in Chicago of the American Economics Association. With me now to look at some of the topics they're discussing is Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent. Samaya, what are the trends this year? What are the the big issues in economics writing?
2: So this year, the hot topic is big data and machine learning. Um, So this is the latest craze, um, which is to take advantage of this huge, huge increase in the number of big data sets. And uh, alongside that, new techniques to look at interesting economics questions. And, And how is this changing the discipline? When new methods come along, the idea is that with this innovation, economists can answer a whole new set of questions, right, which is really exciting. Um, and the problem that big data and machine learning is meant to solve is that. Before, economists worried that they were looking at their small data sets with their small models and they were worried that they were imposing their own assumptions on the data. Whereas with these new techniques, they can be much less restrictive about the inputs. They can let the data speak for itself so they can be more sure that they're not missing something that is really important in their model. Um, And it turns out that these new techniques, this new machine learning, is really, really good at prediction. And using all this data means that they can get much more accurate predictions on what will happen. So an example that is actually being used right now is in America with uh, models and algorithms that they're building to predict who is going to turn up to trial. Um, and so they're building these really complicated models and they're saying, OK, um, based on all these background characteristics, this person is very likely to, to turn up to trial. And so we, we can give him bail, whereas this other person isn't. And so we should keep him locked up. And using these models, they can get very, very accurate predictions. The 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 backlash really concerns the fact that these methods allow you to predict but they don't tell you much about causal factors. The worry is that you end up punishing people for factors that they're not in control of and you might inadvertently be reinforcing underlying biases in in the data that you're putting in. Right, And so this new method, while it's very exciting could actually make economists miss the much bigger question, which is, you know, how can we help people commit fewer crimes and also, you know, improve their lives?
1: And is this replacing an old technique or is it, is it simply broadening the field?
2: So what this should be doing is broadening the field. With these new methods, it should just be expanding the scope of economists and expanding the number of questions that they can answer. I think one of the other general criticisms with these new methods and these new crazes is that essentially economists get so excited by their new method that they get lost in the weeds of applying this new method and they don't take a step back. And that brings me on to another slightly older trend or craze for randomized control trials, which is currently getting a lot of criticism from, uh, in particular, Angus Deaton, who won the Nobel Prize um, last year. And so his criticism is that, you know, we've we got this amazing new method, which helped economists get much more precise and accurate ideas of the effects of policy. So there, the idea was that you randomly say, okay, you get a policy and you don't. And that made it much easier to, to be certain that you were recording the effect, the causal effect of the policy. And the critique there is that economists got so excited by this new method that they started asking different sorts of questions in response to this method. And so they started focusing their attention on these much smaller interventions that weren't likely to have transformative effects. And they stopped thinking about much bigger questions like, you know, how do we make democracy work better? Or, you know, how can we change our institutions, which you can't answer using these, these randomised control trials. Good economics is about asking the right questions. And the danger with these new methods is that economists start to be driven by the methods and not the questions.
1: You make your profession sound rather undisciplined, like children who get a new toy for Christmas and want to play with it all the time and then get bored with it.
2: <laughs> so I do quite enjoy the, the parallel between, you know, economists identifying bubbles, speculative bubbles, where where everyone is you know, driven along by their own irrational exuberance and then there's a correction. There does seem to be a parallel there.
1: bear Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics we've covered in this programme, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist.